1: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Today, the US and China are at loggerheads. There's renewed talk of a Cold War, as Washington finds various ways to cut China out of key supply chains and to block China's economic development in areas like semiconductors and renewables. There's trade, of course, but the imbalance in that, some $370 billion in 2022, tilts in China's favour and only serves as another source of ammunition for America's Sino-sceptics. And of course, very much similar things are happening from the Chinese side too. At this moment, it seems like US-China tensions are inevitable and have been around for ages. But look into the not-so-ancient history and you'll find a totally different picture. In fact, when it comes to communist China's early entry into the global economy, American policymakers and business people were vital in the 1970s and 80s. You could even say that a big part of China's economic success was Made in America. I'm joined today by Elizabeth Ingelson, Assistant Professor of International History at the LSE, whose upcoming book contains some very interesting research on this question. It's called Made in China, When US-China Interests Converge to Transform Global Trade. Elizabeth Ingelson, welcome to Chinese Whispers.
0: Hi, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure.
1: Now... I think listeners know all about the miracles of China's economic growth, lifting 800 million people out of poverty in just five decades, blah, 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 blah. Most people put that down to Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms after 1978. But you say in your book that actually China started opening up even before then under Mao. Can you take us back to the 1970s and what was happening before then?
0: Yeah, and it's this really surprising discovery that I myself wasn't expecting to find. So often, when we talk about China's reforms today, Deng's influence looms really large in these narratives, and for good reason. You know, Deng's reforms in 1978, the reform and opening, were crucial to understanding China's political economy today. But When you switch your lens just a little earlier to the 1970s, you see that there were experimentations happening or I discovered that there were experimentations happening within China Mm from the very early 1970s under Mao, largely as a consequence of a shift in uh, strategy during the Cultural Revolution. So as the Cultural Revolution in the late 1960s and early 1970s begins to take a different turn, you have the death of Lin Biao, Chinese policymakers, particularly more pragmatic-oriented policymakers, begin to think about different ways to develop China's economy because ultimately the history of the Communist Party in China, is a history of experimenting with different development strategies. It failed during the 1950s with the Great Leap Forward. It was failing again uh, with the Cultural Revolution. And by the early 1970s, you see a new attempt at experimenting with ways of development. And one of the crucial reasons that this 1970s experimentation began to uh get legs in the 1970s is because it coincided precisely at the moment with profound changes happening within the American economy too. Mm. And so what I discovered was that the changes happening within China were part of a different or a different side of a similar story happening within the United States too. And so I begin the book in 1971. It's in this year that you see three key changes two within the United States and one within China itself. Uh, So in the US, President Nixon implements two very surprising uh, policy changes that are often referred to as the Nixon shocks. In July, he announced that he was going to go to China. He was uh, ending what had been a 20 year, almost complete isolation between the two nations. And in July 1971, he says, I'm going to go to China. I'm going to start to sort of repair the relationship with this really uh, deep. Cold War foe. Uh, so this is known as the China shock, the first Nixon shock. And then a month later, Nixon announces that he's going to be ending the Bretton Woods system of uh, dollar gold convertibility. It's often referred to as the Nixon economic shock. And these two shocks, the China shock and the economic shock, were connected at the at the time, but they were connected because of the surprise element mm. that they had, uh, that Nixon was sort of using the tool of surprise for his own political benefit. But when we look actually at the longer-term repercussions of these two shocks, you can actually see that they uh, unintentionally worked together, that opening up to China and beginning a process of rapprochement with China... In combination with ending dollar gold convertibility which freed up capital and enabled uh, business people to ultimately uh, be more fluid in how they use their finance and ultimately led to a sort of what we call financialization of globalization and those two things did begin to work together and i can talk a little bit more Mm. about how that happened uh later But the third key thing that happens in 1971, which certainly wasn't connected to those other two changes at the time, is that Lin Biao dies. A key military chief within uh, China dies in very mysterious circumstances. And it's this really key moment in the cultural revolution within Chinese high politics that more pragmatically minded policymakers in China begin to um, be freed up to turn Turn to different developmental models or experiment with different ex- developmental models for China's political economy. With uh, Lin Biao had been very against any kind of opening up with, with uh, the United States and with his death was taken away the, uh, the limitation that a lot of more sort of uh, pragmatic and um, more open to US Chinese policymakers were.
1: And is that mainly Zhou Enlai or who are the people we're talking about here because Deng Xiaoping at the time I think was working in a factory somewhere in central China. Yes, he was, he was.
0: <laughs> Zhou Enlai was crucial to this story, so too were um, Shen Yun and some other, uh, Li Yan, another sort of um, mm-hmm. key economic policymaker who then return again or con- uh, sort of they recede and uh, come back again in the throughout the 1970s and return yeah. again in the early 1980s. Yeah, you've
1: got an incredible figure in your book that China's foreign trade actually tripled between 1971 and 1974. And, you know, I think people have this idea, as I certainly have this idea of the Cultural Revolution where many foreign things were seen as suspects. So it's fascinating to hear about what the death of Lin Biao was able to open up. But presumably Mao was also endorsing this kind of experimentation. I mean, he was the one who also met Nixon
0: Absolutely. Mao was crucial to this entire story. Nothing that was happening in these experiments happened without Mao's approval. And so what you see in the early 1970s, and again with the, with the death of Limbiao, is a delinking of industrialization from militarization. There had been a real connection between the military and, mm-hmm. and um, industrialization, and that military-industrial nexus began to sort of un- unwind
1: with Mao's approval. Because the PLA was also going through its own cultural evolution is absolutely. that why yeah.
0: absolutely and so Mao now- throughout uh, this this era, now dies in 76, as you know, and throughout in the early, the first half of the 1970s, each experimentation, each policy that gets put in place, um, I look at a whole range of them, including uh, the 4.3 uh, program, uh, which is implemented in 1973. It's sort of so named for a $4.3 billion price tag, industrialization price tag that it had. Each one of these experimentations and, and programs that get put in place, uh, were, were only able to be done with Mao's um, approval. So this is really crucial to, to sort of rethinking how we chronologize China's, China's economic uh,
1: changes that we're familiar with today. Mm. And you can see what the Chinese side gets out of it in terms of, you know, you've had, had a great famine, the cultural revolution has disrupted all aspects of ordinary life, but what did the Americans get out of it? Why were they interested in suddenly going to red China? <laughs> <do it> then. <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is a really important question to, to the book and it was something that I really grappled with because on the face of it, the the easy answer is, you know, they wanted to make profit, they wanted to make money. But I soon found that a lot of the business people I was looking at, a lot of the American corporations that are part of this story, were not making money at all. In fact, a lot of them were losing money. Okay. <laughs> um, so, for example, JCPenney, a major retailer, lost a whole bunch of um, money from, it, from its trade with China. Uh, Ford Motors sold barely a thing to China. And in fact, um, purchased from China and was giving money, you know, the the dynamic was one of importing rather than exporting. And so I started to see that the story of American motivations and American um, corporations and and, um, business people was far more complex than simply, oh, they wanted to make a buck. Mm. Um, And this is where I think the role of a historian is really important because I'm interested in political economy. I'm interested in big structural changes. But I also understand the importance of culture and the importance of human emotion to big systemic change. And a lot of the business people I look at were motivated by excitement and (laughs) (laughs) exoticism, right? Right. These these are human beings who themselves had, some of them had a lifelong affinity with China. Some of them were children of missionaries, Mm. Others had studied the culture or the language. Others were simply, you know, suited executives. you know, high-flying corporate America who saw an exotic other and saw in China the possibility of an adventure. And so a whole range of different emotional sort of registers motivated these business people.
1: And I guess it would have been incredibly exciting in the 1970s because before that point you had two decades of China closed off basically since the 1949 takeover of the communists Uh, whereas before 1949 China was actually an incredibly international and cosmopolitan place in the cities at least for the first half of the century so these foreigners were kicked out and this is the first time they could have to come back in so I can imagine that is (laughs) really exciting especially if you happen to have family or links to China somehow Um, but they also started seeing China not just as a market as as the early western traders saw China you know I'm talking about before the communists because you also write that they saw such seen China as a source of labor mm. rather than like a source of consumers so mm. tell us about that shift why is that so important yeah
0: this is such a it's such an important aspect I think to understanding what is ultimately at the heart of this book is the question of how did China converge how did this giant mm. communist nation converge with the global capitalist system A significant part of that has to do with the changes that were happening within American capitalism itself. So this was an era in which what we take for granted today in 2024, in which you have supply chain dynamics, you have uh, internationalised manufacturing, we're familiar with that. We understand sort of outsourced labour, outsourced manufacturing. Mm. In the 1970s, that was still been developed, it was still happening. You know, J.C. Penney, for example, a a really important retailer at the time in the United States, one of the largest retailers in the country, in uh, in the early 1970s only imported about 10% of its entire stock. The rest of what it sold was, was made in non-unionised, largely non-unionised manufacturing facilities within the United States. Mm. It developed a plan in which it wanted to increase its um, imports of goods produced overseas. It wanted cheaper labour. But that was something that it was still working through. It was something that it was aiming towards. And I think that's really important to keep in mind from our context in 2024. Just how much the sort of global systems of production that we are familiar with were decisions still unfolding Mm. in the 1970s. But we take it so
1: for granted now. (laughs) Exactly. We take it so
0: for granted now. And so these changes happening within American capitalism began to coincide with and and be deliberately cultivated on the Chinese side mm. um, and and the two began to converge in very interesting ways and often unexpectedly these were often unintended consequences or at least the bigger picture of the sort of China as the workshop of the world today that is a largely unintended consequence of this bigger structural change happening within American capitalism uh, so China began to be understood as a place of cheap labour by small importing groups within the United States. So people working in the textile industry, people working in in fashion. They were some of the crucial people leading the change in how to to trade with China. Mm. And what was so important is that they were seeing China as a place to import goods, to see China as a place for cheap labour. And that was precisely what those experimentations I mentioned earlier Precisely what those experimentations within uh, China were aiming to do. Right. They wanted to create a China that was um, that was able to industrialize via exports. So an export oriented production that, or an export oriented industrialization mm. that used production of goods and the sales of those those goods. Cheap clothing is obvious is an easy starting point for most uh, developing countries, and using the money obtained from that in order to buy fertilizer factories and larger scale goods. So those interests of the Chinese pragmatists began to coincide with and align with the changes happening within American capitalism and production.
1: And is that quite a um, back and forth process? You know, are you saying that Joe and I were so prescient that he could see this coming, (laughs) or was it just very much kind of rubbing along, trying to see what works? How did that happen from the Chinese perspective?
0: Rubbing along and seeing how it works. I really <laughs> like that. It's not quite Den's Cats. No, <laughs> it's, not, it's not, but it is, I think, it captures the messiness right. of this era. And I think it captures the messiness of... Of, of often how big historical change can occur mm. it's very rare that you have this sort of pronouncement from a high and this sort of large-scale vision that ultimately ends up history is the story and the world we live in today is the story of unintended consequences and this story is perhaps one of the largest uh, the creation of a a workshop of the world of a, of a country that has been able to industrialize and benefit so strongly from these processes it was an a consequence of muddling through (laughs) Mm, mm. with with vision as well right with vision as well but often those visions did not foresee the full potential if I could at this point though say there was a real key group who did see the potential of what and the long-term consequences of what of what's happening uh, right from the start and that is American labor. Mm. So even as I say, you know, this is a muddling through and, you know, Chinese pragmatists were experimenting and they had no idea. I mean, China's economy, we've got to keep in mind, China's economy in the 1970s is still very much, you know, recovering from it in the throes of the Cultural Revolution and the huge upheaval that has been caused there at at all levels of society. It was, you know, very much, you know, a, 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 a space of promise at best and so you have this muddling through on the china side and on the on the corporate side within the united states but but there is a key group who, right from the start, were warning about the consequences of what would be happening if um, the United States did just, without thinking, without putting on some breaks or some restrictions, if it did just continue to trade with China in the way that it was going. And, and so uh, organized American labor groups, the AFL-CIO, a crucial uh, labor organization, the key one within the United States, were warning right from the start that mm. what this would do to American jobs uh, and and what might happen as a consequence simply of the sheer size and scale of China's economy Uh, but I think uh, exactly because China's economy was so uncertain, there was very little heed uh, right. paid to that. In addition, of course, to a politics that did not value or um, prioritize labour interests. So those two things—the political deprioritization of labour and the so realities of the Chinese economy—meant that those fears were were largely unheeded.
1: Mm. And that all looks so misplaced now in 2024, with mm. with lots of American. Jobs lost to China, and you know that kind of deindustrialization arguably contributing very much to the rise of people like Donald Trump, for example, late, decades later. Um, but on that point about the politics, because we've talked about the businessmen who, for excitement or for profit or for cheap labor, want to go into China, but they, they were also supported by the politicians, right? You know, hmm. you've mentioned Nixon. But from what I understand from your book, it's also that the political establishment as a whole wanted to pull China away from the USSR and into the American economic orbit. And so actually thought this kind of rapprochement through trade was quite good. So so what role did those politicians and diplomats play? Yeah, this is such
0: an important question. The role of geopolitics here was crucial. So when we think today about uh, U.S.-China trade, often there's this conversation about the engagement policy. That you know, mm. if, if the United States continues to trade with China, perhaps China would liberalize, and and you know uh, its its politics may change. And that was certainly an important aspect of U.S.-China trade, even in the 1980s, and particularly uh, from the 1990s and 2000s uh, onwards. But it's crucial to emphasize that in the 1980s, 1970s, this opening of trade was motivated not by a desire to change China's politics, not by a desire to uh, change China actually in many ways at all, but instead it was driven by geopolitics and by a desire in particular to, um, uh, to contain the Soviet Union and to sort of, in what's known as sort of triangular diplomacy, uh, wedge between China and the Soviet Union, which themselves had had a major falling out by the early 1970s. Uh, and so to pit these two mm. uh, these sort of Cold War foes, just keep in mind we're still in the Cold War in this era That to pit these Cold War foes against one another. Uh, America also had geopolitical interests in sort of using China to assist it in getting somehow muddling its way out of the war in Vietnam as well. And so while geopolitics was crucial to understanding the rapprochement, it also means that we can understand why it is that US policymakers began to encourage American business people to import from China. Because what you see in the middle of the decade is a real concern on the part of Chinese policymakers who are worried that American business people are wanting to sell to China without buying from China as well. They didn't want a trade deficit. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so this this concern on the Chinese side of a trade deficit meant that Chinese policymakers began to indicate through policies and through what they were saying and, and through uh, cancellations of, 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 um, of orders from uh, American uh, business people, they began to very strongly show the ways that they did not want a trade deficit, particularly with the United States. And so US policymakers who saw trade as a tool of their larger geopolitical imperatives, trade was important for helping geopolitics, they therefore began to say, okay, China wants to limit its uh, trade deficit with us. Why don't we help them (laughs) by increasing the imports that American business people have from China? We need to encourage more American business people to buy (laughs) from China. And it's precisely that political assumption that trade can be used as a tool for larger geopolitical ends that led to a larger um, restructuring or encouraged The larger restructuring that was happening uh, on the economic front. So on the economic front you have, as I've mentioned you know, companies beginning to turn towards outsourced production Mm. and on the political and diplomatic front you have an encouragement of that same mentality coming from a very different space and that's a space of wanting to use trade to assist and sort of placate the Chinese concerns. And so those those different imperatives began to work together Mm. to an ultimate um, transformation in what it means to even speak of U.S.-China trade, you know, for so long, American and not just American, uh, European and 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 other uh, business people had looked to China for centuries as a place to sell. China's was a uh, was a place to to sell surplus goods for the United States uh, uh, in the late 19th century. This China market was always fabled as as you know, offering real potential in that regard. And in the 1970s, as you have this really important structural change occurring in the uh, ways that American capitalism and global capitalism more broadly was operating, you see this idea of the China market begin to look not of one of selling to its customers Mm. but rather a place where you could get cheap labor one of 800 million workers
1: that that trade deficit thing is so incredible because i mean in global trade obviously countries will have deficits and surpluses with each Mm. other but china has an extraordinary amount of surpluses with other countries (laughs) with When you look at it from Chinese perspective, and that has become so politicized, mm. you know. Especially, I think I remember Donald Trump talking so much about how you know America imports more from China than it exports China now. That's a massive problem. So to hear you say that actually, as recently as the 1970s, American policymakers were actively encouraging where there was a surplus with China, they were encouraging Americans to have a deficit instead. It's just. <laughs> It's just so incredible. <laughs> it, it is, I mean, um, one,
0: yeah. And one of the reasons for this is that the money that I should emphasise—the numbers were really low. Mm. The numbers were low, and so that trade was understood as politics, yeah. not as trade for its own sake. And so that felt like the stakes were lower.
1: How did that nexus look in in reality, in terms of you know what were the encouragements that policymakers gave to these businesses to kind of turn that trend, and also where did the textiles workers and the unions uh, fit? into all of that, when the politicians were on the side of the business people, do they just get silenced or, or sidelined or, or what was happening there? So there are a couple of avenues
0: in which that occurred. So one of the key ways was a the National Council for US-China Trade, a, a organisation established by the Nixon administration uh, and um, sort of a consequence of Nixon and Kissinger's attempts to sort of build these ties with China. It was privately run, but it was through the National Council that um, there was a real push Mm. to encourage Americans to import from China. Policymakers themselves were um, were more active in preventing or limiting the impact that American textile workers had on their own attempts to um, control the trade that was happening with China. So this story in the 1970s uh, is a story of textiles being a crucial entry point for both Chinese uh, experimentations but also American labor showing the ways that they were you know the canary in the coal mine mm. or the canary in the textile mill maybe uh, that they were at the forefront of a much larger structural shift and so American policymakers and including uh, uh, President Carter himself at various points uh, by the late 1970s intervened to ensure that that are uh, textile Workers' attempts to limit the imports coming in to the United States from China, that those, those attempts would be unsuccessful. Wow. Uh, there's, a, there's a case that I look at in the book of glove makers, cotton work glove makers, who launched, in fact, the first case ever of restrictions against China. And it's there that the State Department and the, uh, the liaison office, which at that time was sort of the equivalent of the American embassy in, in China, They actively got involved to warn their Chinese counterparts that this case was going to happen, to warn their Chinese counterparts that if they just reduced, uh, yeah, if they reduced their glove um, sales for a little bit of time that that would sort of ease off in the case itself and it, it did become a factor mm. um, in sort of the decision to not impose quotas and limits on Chinese cotton gloves.
1: I just want to, want, wondered if you could put this in context because you, you mm. described this um, process happening on the American side of internationalising labour anyway. You also mentioned in the book that actually before China was opening up in the 70s, it was often made in Taiwan or made in Japan that was actually mm. you know, some of these external imported textile goods and other things. So do you think that, I guess, just to take China out of the equation, if it wasn't jobs going to China, would jobs have gone to another cheap Asian labor uh, source of labour?
0: That's such a great question and it's such an important one. Um, so the short answer is those jobs were already... Right, already starting to go to Japan, they were starting to Mm. go to Taiwan. Made in Taiwan, for example, I use it um, as part of a sort of larger narrative thread in the book to illustrate the ways that, um, as you say, there was a real concern about um, cheap labour, particularly but not only uh, Asian labour at this time. One of the key things to keep in mind is that the... Degree of the degree of um, overseas production of outsourced production was still considerably lower than what it is today. It was still, as I say, J.C. penny was importing only ten percent of its mm-hmm. inventory. So legislative changes in combination with the financialization of American capital, so the end of the Bretton Woods uh, system, this this second Nixon shock that I mentioned, that that financialization of the global economy enabled corporations and, and businesses to move their capital a lot more freely and they were able to set up production facilities what we think of as you know special economic zones for example in china they were able to set up production facilities much more easily and in combination with improvements in technology such as shipping communications uh, computers etc a whole range of larger changes in the political economy enabled uh, this system of globalization to occur so those changes were happening where i think an important counterfactual lies is not only in what would have happened mm. if we had a different system of capitalist production if we didn't allow for such degree of financialization or such degree of outsourced manufacturing which by the way I really want to underscore is motivated by a very core premise that labor should be as cheap as possible right This this idea that labor is a to every aspect of, of corporate behaviour. And so we've got to keep it as cheap as possible. And that's been driving, you know, if I use the text, if I stick with the textile industry as my example of a larger set of industrial practices, that's been something that's the, the long history of, of, of textiles is a pursuit of cheap labour mm. within the United States. And then, you know, from the, the unionised north to the non unionised south of the United States, and then eventually to cheap labour overseas uh so there is one aspect just to get back to this this question there's one aspect of this sort of counterfactual that says what would our world look like what would it be what where would we be today if we'd had a different more regulated form of of, of global capitalism uh, and production if the the financialized globalization um, had been more regulated uh, in this era I think the 1970s is crucial and and i Chart a few of those uh, resistance attempts mm. within Congress to to limit the impact of these changes, but where I think there's an additional element is. China itself. So the size of China, the nature of its political system, the nature of its um, experimentations meant that it was um, very deliberately converging with these changes that were unfolding in the global capitalist system and that it was able to, through the success of, 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 of these experimentations within within China, none of which were, were guaranteed, mm-hmm. right? But those, those experimentations did succeed. Deng Xiaoping did uh, manage to uh, solidify those changes by 1978 and and therefore with that consolidate uh, the nature of of what we deem globalisation. So it's... It's very difficult, I think, to think of the story of globalization without placing China in that picture. Mm. But these were two dynamics, the changes within China and the changes within global capitalism that really coincided and, and converged in this decade uh, mm. with really crucial
1: uh, long-term repercussions. And just going a bit further ahead in history then, you know, your book focused mainly on the 70s. But as you say, Deng Xiaoping comes into power or emerges from a power struggle by 1978 to be the paramount leader. And that's when traditionally historians say the reform era starts. Um, what happens when it comes to these Chinese economic reforms from 1978 onwards in terms of the American support, whether it's private or whether it's political? Uh, you know, I'm thinking of things like in 2001, the US still supported China's accession to the World Trade Organization, mm-hmm. for example. So the patterns and dynamics that we've talked about so far, Elizabeth, do they continue to play out in those later decades of reform?
0: So yes and yes to a degree. And one of the things that's so interesting is the ways that a lot of these reforms that, and changes uh, that I'm describing and looking at and analysing in the, in the book uh, begin to really solidify by, as you say, the post-78 era. China allows for special economic zones and American capital is now freed in certain spaces to, to invest and that's crucial. Mm. Um, I, I tell the story of Nike... Uh, Nike that make the shoes who set up facilities in China really early on, uh, very much motivated by the cheap labor. They they openly celebrate <laughs> the cheap labor that China provides, and so a lot of these patterns that were unfolding in the 1970s get solidified in this era. But one key difference, and you mention, uh, you know, Clinton's uh, sort of rationale and, and, and support for China's accession into the WTO in 2001, one of the key and most important changes is the nature of how trade and manufacturing operates. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, I've been talking a lot about these sort of uh, the, the the tangible transformations in in how to make things and the way that that became internationalized but what's so important is that the politics of trade the politics of talking about U.S. China trade Mm. remained really Continuous and remained really bound by early 20th century notions about what trade even means. So Clinton spoke, for example, in 2000 when he was sort of making the case for why China should uh, should be allowed or wish the United States should encourage China's accession into the WTO. He made the case by invoking China's uh, customers. The U.S. business people would be able to sell to China that it could make wealth in China. Uh, even though the very structures of trade and manufacturing and of finance had become uh, internationalised and interwoven in ways that, um, that were far more complex than simply saying we are, we are an American company selling to China. It, 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 it operated differently and yet the politics of trade and the rhetorical power of trade remained bound by nation states. That you know we Americans can sell to China, and it's that precise continuity that Donald Trump, someone like Donald Trump, is able to capitalize upon. Uh, he's able to. Take a very simplistic and, as I say, early twentieth century mm. notion of what trade means, and still reap political mileage from it. Still is still able to say these are this is American, made in America by American, versus you know made in China, even though we know that. The ways that products are created looks very different today. Uh, the supply chain dynamics, the the unfolding of of far more fluid means of um, manufacturing,
1: in a sense that one product will have many different countries of origin. Really, exactly. Except for just one made in China or made in America, it's just a whole supply chain internationally going through different places. Is what you mean?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And we yeah. and we know this from COVID, right? Mm. <laughs> We've lived through it. We we know it from you know the evergreen ship stuck stuck in the yeah, yeah, yeah. in the canal so we know we're, we're familiar with supply chains by now we're familiar with the way that global um, trade operates and yet the political stasis remains so so entrenched yeah and i think it, partly it has to do with a really long held D- desire on the part of business but also politics to deflect attention away from uh, what's really at the core of these dynamics which is a pursuit of cheap labor mm. a pursuit of cutting costs at at the worker level and instead it becomes in the interests of of large-scale corporations to frame the issue uh, in some ways as as being one of a simplistic narrative nation state one uh, because it it allows for the larger imperatives that have led us here cheap labor to be to be uh de yeah. and continued
1: yeah. yeah you know on that 20th century um conception of trade as well Elizabeth, that you mentioned that trump is so <laughs> mm. um prone to have you know it was something we talked about so much in this podcast is the difference between surplus and deficit yeah. and you know there's this idea that if you you everyone wants a surplus with other countries that you're trading with that china is somehow in a better position because it has a trade surplus with america but you know actually someone um who was relatively sympathetic to the prc said to me recently that you know for China if it even if it is the case that it's just straightforward surplus or deficit China is a seller America is a consumer if China loses its customers that's also a massive national security problem for China so this reliance mm. thing really goes both ways and you know it's not just that the seller is always better off um you know if your if your sales suddenly dry up overnight China is hugely reliant on its exports to America as well.
0: It is, it is. And this is, um, it is for now. <laughs> and this is what's been so interesting about sort of... Follow- or it's
1: exports in general, I guess I should say, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely.
0: And what's so important is that uh, to speak of exports and to speak of trade, we have to connect it in a way that is far more important than even sort of thinking about early 20th century American trade or, or trade more broadly, is we have to connect it to finance uh, be- precisely because the nature of the political economy we live through today is one where finance and trade are, f- are very profoundly entwined. Mm. Um, when when we speak of foreign direct investment, setting up um, manufacturing facilities, for example, that's for trade outcomes, but it's relying on finance. And so trade and finance are really, really entwined today in really crucial ways that they haven't always been. Uh, if you look back, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, for example, things operated a little differently. But that Interdependence is actually precisely what got me interested in this topic mm. in the first place. I began this topic scarily a while ago now, in 2012, <laughs> uh, when I was just beginning wow. my yeah when I was just beginning my PhD. And it's in that era um, that policymakers spoke all the time about uh, American, in particular, but not only, all the time, and, pol- and political scientists about the importance of the economic interdependence mm. as being a mitigating factor against war potential war between the two countries or that you know uh security concerns can be can be lessened because of this interdependence Mm. just as you describe and i think if we fast forward uh to the era in which this is you know the book is you know finally here (laughs) uh and you know Out out in april that's right uh but, you know, if we fast forward to, to today and if I, uh, we, we're living through a very different context, I think, mm-hmm. one in which China itself and Xi Jinping very much outlines a, a vision in which China is in certain industries self-reliant. Um, renewable energy is one of the big ones and it was remarkable to read at the end of last year that I think about 50% of China's renewable energy production is, is, comes from domestic uh, source and so in certain aspects of China's economy, there is a real attempt to de-link. Yeah, to decouple. Uh, to decouple, that's right, to decouple. And I think that is is, is, is such a profound change
1: uh, in just the space of, what, 12 years yeah. since I began the project. Mm. Well, that kind of anticipates my next question, Elizabeth, because we talked about, you know, Clinton and Trump. I, I guess I just wonder, you know, at what point in between 2001 and 2016 those are really vague kind of time uh points in time that i've picked out there did the u.s china economic relationship change you mm. know wearing a place now where we're, we're listening to these things to, we're talking about these things happening in the 70s and they seem so out of place and so out of kilter mm. with the u.s china relationship as we understand it now so what do you think the turning point was or or maybe a set of turning points were in that period and and you know as you point out the change hasn't just come from the American side I seem to remember a certain governor of Fujian in the (laughs) early 2000s uh, by the name of Xi Jinping campaigning for American business people to have more investment in Fujian at the time and clearly that's also changed so where do you think what do you identify as the as a shift that that something like this can seem so out of place to talk about now?
0: That's such an excellent question and... Uh, some of the key things that stand out for me first and foremost the 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 global financial crisis that the impact of the financial crisis both uh, materially for the United States and what that has still the the recovery that is still going on within the United States uh, cannot be underestimated in making sense of its political economy at the time and 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 since and and the ways that it has attempted to sort of work its way through I think on a sort of less material perhaps and more sort of um, conceptual uh frame uh the the financial crisis really impacted China as well mm. and it really uh, uh had a it led to a real calibration in how China, how far China would want to continue to integrate the way that it was going uh, after its accession into the WTO, uh, how how it approached it itself approached uh, financial concerns. I think that's a large reason why today you see stimulus as being the crucial and only way that Xi Jinping is currently uh, permitting a uh, improvement in China's economy today. I think that is an, a lesson of sorts from the financial crisis. But I think also you see in this era a whole range of other things going on. So in between 2001 and 2016, as you say, in between Mm. China entering the World Trade Organization and Trump coming into power and, and sort of launching his, his trade war with China, you see a whole range of other issues in some ways distracting the United States, at least, from from some of these slower, quieter structural changes going on. You have the war on terror. You have right. the forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You have a whole range of political decisions that center on um, strategic and, and terrorist uh, concerns and, and I think led to a a focus on the military as being Mm. a crucial way in which the United States should operate in the world rather than diplomacy or uh, if I I were to put my wishful thinking hat on and my knowledge that this is simply wishful thinking rather than a politics that centres labour. Right. I do think a crucial part of this story uh is is a very long uh tradition in American politics um that sees geopolitics as more important than than labor concerns particularly when it comes to sort of trade
1: issues yeah. uh, etc. And I guess as you say, you know, back in the 70s, nobody, not even the Chinese, could possibly have foreseen the economic miracle that was to come. So I guess as one of the changes that happened in the background that maybe the US wasn't paying so much attention to was just the boom in the Chinese economy. And then suddenly, oh my God, (laughs) they're (laughs) the second largest economy in the world.
0: Suddenly they are, yes. (laughs) Um, I think there's certainly an element of that. I think there's certainly an element uh, by 2012 or so, uh, with Obama's pivot as well, that there is a... The realization that this um, this engagement policy, right, that if we engage with China, it will uh, liberalize in particular ways, uh, was not was not something that was going particularly well for American policymakers. But I think there's a bigger concern that has less to do with whether or not China was liberalizing, and that that is much more to do with China beginning to turn its economic clout towards military clout as well and translate a lot of its economic development into geostrategic power as well and I think the sort of the changes in geopolitics uh, from the mid-2010s onwards is really crucial Mm. Uh, and it's that that I think has made all the difference far more than whether or not China is you know politically liberalizing or not I mean the United States has plenty of allies who are hardly political liberals right and I think far more important is the ways that China has started to sort of really divert or use that uh, economic power that it has for military and geopolitical purposes
1: so Elizabeth let me finish on um, a thought experiment then You've been so generous generous (laughs) with your time, but I just wanted to get your take on this. I've just come back from Shanghai, and one of the business people I spoke to there had this rather, I think, witty solution to US-China tensions today, and I, I wanted to run it past you. He said that... You know, China should just, I mean, the economy is slowing anyway, China should just slow down the economy so that it's no longer the world's second largest economy and let India come and take that role. And then America will care less about what China does and more about what India does. And maybe the way to do that is a massive devaluation of the Chinese currencies, which is immediately... Depressed Chinese GDP, and in that day, you know, let, letting India come from behind, U.S.-China relations might go back to the seventies. <laughs> do, do you think about that? I uh, think he might have been joking, but I'm not sure. Was this business person Indian by any chance? No, he no? wasn't. No, no, he was Chinese. He was Chinese. He was like, right. "How can we get American off our throats?" Yeah, yeah.
0: I think. Look, I think there are f- quite a few things going on, right? <laughs> um. I think there is a genuine desire from what I, from the conversations I've, I've been a witness to and in some spaces being part of, I, I do think there is a genuine desire on the part of both American policymakers and Chinese policies, policymakers to de-escalate, you know, the situation that we're, we're living through. And that, and that also pertains perhaps even more to other nations within the Asian region, mm. uh, my own home country, Australia, to a degree, Japan, Taiwan, etc but i do think that the the ways we get there have less to do with creating an alternative enemy <laughs> Right, or creating an alternative sort of figure for the United States to focus its 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 competition on, and genuinely instead grapples with the structures of the world that we are all entwined in, and so to really think about U.S. China relations and the future of it necessitates a grappling with the future of the the capitalist economy and the and the and the global uh, systems of of engagement there, and I. Think to really uh, strengthen America's, if, if the United States wants to strengthen its place within the world, and and to uh, mitigate against geopolitical tensions and concerns, it begins with genuinely reframing how its own political economy operates, both domestically and abroad. And there's you know the Biden attempts at the moment for you know. Um, uh, the industrial policy, the the sort of industrial policy for the middle class. It's an attempt, I think, to centre industrial production and, and policies in, in a geopolitical space, which I think is important and really interesting. But it's not an industrial relations pro- policy, right? It doesn't centre – it's still not centering labour because when we think about the process, for example, of deindustrialisation – in the United States, it wasn't a process in which manufacturing declined mm. in the United States. It was manufacturing jobs. And so deindustrialization wasn't about lack of industrialization it was the lack of industrial jobs and so the world that we're living in today is very different it's not about sort of going back as Donald Trump would have us to some kind of industrial Nirvana not that it ever existed right it's not about some kind of return to manufacturing but rather about a politics and a society that prioritizes labor as much as it prioritizes capital and that's ultimately a, a dynamic that um, has been so skewed in favour of capital that to really sort of mitigate against any kind of larger geopolitics, I believe, necessitates mitigating and strengthening the power of people,
1: of democracy, ultimately. I feel like the US and China might make up before that happens in America. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is why, this is, I, abs- I sh- that's exactly right. This is, this. it may sound, you know, pie in the sky kind of sort of thinking, but if we take the example for, um, of AI, right, a, re- a really important space in which the United States and China are competing and they are, um, you know, really in the process transforming the world that we're living in. At the moment, there is real concern amongst some economists, some really important economists, who are emphasizing the impact that this AI revolution may have on future labour forces. A revolution uh, in technology is important, but it needs to be linked with labour and labour's needs. We don't need technology. or We need to be careful not to let the technological revolution take over and displace labour needs. And so it's this is a sort of more current example where you have, where, where we're at the forefront, I think, in really significant change It's entwined with US-China competition, but at the moment it's not taking stock Mm. of whether it needs to replace labour to the degree that it's certainly possible that it might. And instead we need to sort of have a politics that recalibrates and thinks about the impact of this change and transformation for workers and so it's a this is what I mean when I say a politics that centers workers a politics that of its time centers workers it's not about as I've mentioned earlier returning to an imagined industrialized economy or industrialization based on manufacturing but it's about a politics of the day that thinks about what it's doing in relation to its
1: workers and its people that makes a lot of sense Elizabeth Ingelson, thank you so much thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there.